Ezekiel 33. Uh, we've got a saint we've been studying, uh, Ezekiel here. And we're going to pick it up with verse 21. And verses 21 through 33, we'll finish out uh, chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. And then, uh, you know, which, with the exception of a few parts, the majority of the rest of Ezekiel is meant to encourage us as we look forward. Uh, and we'll see uh, there's still one more kind of looking back at in chapter 34, the irresponsible shepherds. But uh, uh, verse 21 through 33 tonight, um, I think everybody here has a Bible, so I don't have to do my new thing that I already forgot to do that I do on Sunday. So uh, starting verse 21. And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity in the tenth month, the fifth day of the month, that one who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been captured. Exclamation, this wouldn't have been a soft statement, but just kind of a, a crying out. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the man who had came had escaped. And he had opened my mouth so that when he came to me in the morning, my mouth was open and I was no longer mute. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, they who inhabit those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, and he inherited the land, but we are many, and the land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord your God, You eat meat with blood, you lift up your eyes towards your idols, you shed blood. Should you then possess the land? You rely on the sword, you commit abominations, you defile another's wives, um, you defile one another's wives. Should you then possess the land? Say thus to them, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those that are in the ruins shall fall by the sword. The one who is in the open field I will give to the beast to be devoured. Those who are in the strongholds and caves shall die of the pestilence. For I'll make the land more desolate. Her arrogant strength shall cease, and the mountains of Israel shall be desolate, so that no one will pass through. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I have made the land most desolate because of all their abominations which they have committed. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you uh, beside the walls and the doors of the houses. They speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the, uh, what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. With their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. <laughs> Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song, one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. But they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Let's pray. Father, we gather here this evening uh, by your grace, and we're so thankful for uh, carrying us uh, so far through this week. Lord, I do lift up our Dear brother, uh, Pastor Tito, that you would comfort him tonight, comfort his family, you'd comfort uh, Pastor Tony, the staff, the church. Uh, Lord, I still continue to pray that you'd comfort our brother, Ray, uh, here with us tonight, and, and his daughter and his family. Lord, and I pray that uh, in the days, months, and years ahead, Lord, you'll give more insight and understanding to what you're doing. Uh, Lord, we don't understand the things uh, that we can't uh, really see only you can see this side of heaven. Only you can know this side of heaven, Lord, why you allow certain things to happen. But, Lord, we pray that you would just still give uh, that peace that surpasses all understanding. And, Lord, in our study tonight, we pray that you would uh, just give uh, the understanding of your word. Uh, you pr 
prepare our hearts and our minds. And Jesus, you just draw us nearer to you. Even though a passage that perhaps uh, we might think in one way, Lord, you do a different work in us. And we ask it in your name, we pray. Amen. For years, scientists and geologists had warned of a major earthquake that would come to the Caribbean. An epicenter was expected to be in or near the island of, or the nation of Haiti. Experts warned that the buildings in Haiti weren't built with seismic activity factored in. Money that would come in, whether through the United Nations or through businesses or you know, just through taxes or whatever it may be, money that was used on other, problem, uh, other priorities never addressed the problems that were cited. A year before the devastating earthquake that struck Haiti, you might remember back in 2010, a local geologist by the name of Claude Prepete wrote a paper warning government officials, and he spoke specifically to the shoddy and unstable construction in his country, saying, if we don't stop these constructions, we risk seeing Port-au-Prince transformed into a vast cemetery. Given the capital's current state of decay, we won't be able to bring necessary help to thousands of victims. He said in his warnings, we have to expect the worst. And yet, nobody made any changes. Three million people were affected by that uh, earthquake, and more than 100,000 people died. People often know what could happen. People know what should happen. People know what might happen, but they still don't think it will happen. Isn't that interesting? All of those things, they still don't think it will happen. And if it does, it will probably be way later, way after my lifetime, way somewhere far away. It probably won't impact their life or our life or their family or their home or their city or their country. It'll be somebody else, right? Scientists and geologists, they can warn, but they're making educated guesses, aren't they? They don't know definitively when an earthquake's going to hit. You know, the one in Japan, uh, there was also a, a scientist there that had studied, actually looked at the ancient records and found a Japanese poem that actually spoke about, uh, I can't remember, it was about 800 Eight, eight or nine hundred years earlier, uh, uh, a tsunami that he believed landed right where the Fukushima uh, nuclear reactors are. So, and he also put out warnings well in advance that that area was a bad place to have a nuclear power plant. And so, these are nuclear reactors, uh, but these are educated guesses based on prior data or known geological patterns and variables. But when God speaks on his own behalf, mark it down, right? Just mark it down. Plan on it. How about this? Plan your life around it. And Jesus said, build, build your house on the rock. Whatever God said, plan your life around it. And I'm speaking to me too. Plan our lives around it. You think about, you know, we're going to look at Luke 17, part 2. We've still got to get the prophecy part in this coming Sunday. 
Noah was planning around a boat that nobody else thought was necessary. Right? Planning his life, not only his life, but planning his family's life. Eight and all. Nobody else listening. Nobody else building a boat. Nobody else preparing. Nobody else believing. Most people yawning or laughing or ridiculing or mocking. Plan our lives around what God has to say. He had given Ezekiel the case against Judah. If you've been with us in all the prior chapters, the case has been laid out pretty detailed, right? God actually very repetitive, lays it out, lays it out again, lays it out again, lays it out again. I've got to like, Lord, how do I re-preach this again? There it is. The case has been laid out. And the certainty of judgment that's coming from Babylon, he tells the sword of Babylon is coming. And God had warned for years and years and years, going all the way back to the prophet Isaiah, God had warned for years the destruction of Jerusalem was imminent. It would happen. It's kind of like when Jesus says, surely I'm coming quickly, and you're like, well, he can't possibly mean that because it's been over 2,000 years. But he actually means what he says, doesn't he? When he says quickly, I don't know how to rectify some of the things God says, but I just believe them nevertheless. You know what I mean? We can never understand them all. But he had been warning of the destruction of Jerusalem, that it was imminent. And he had warned to and through Ezekiel for about the past seven years. So it was about seven years from the time Ezekiel was called back in chapter 1. It was about seven full years of him receiving and presenting. Receiving and presenting. So, but most of the time, those people in the, that seven-year period thought it would be like all the other previous years going back to Isaiah. And Jerusalem had survived, it still would. About seven years before it was finally fulfilled. But most didn't believe it. Most of those in Jerusalem didn't believe it. Most of those there in captivity in Babylon with Ezekiel didn't believe it. Until it actually happened. Happening makes believers of everybody, doesn't it? When something actually happens, there's no disputing it. Everyone finally believed. If you're taking notes, I've titled our study tonight, When Someday Finally Comes. When Someday Finally Comes. We'll look at three things briefly tonight. The collapse, the cause, and the curiosity. The collapse, the cause, and the curiosity. This collapse, again, Ezekiel, he had no trouble believing it. He believed that it would happen. He believed that it would come. Many other people that listened to him didn't believe that. We see verses 21 and 22, and uh, the, uh, this person that has survived and somehow got out of the area uh, has made the long trek from Jerusalem to Babylon, and he, I don't know why, maybe God put it on his heart, he knew to go to Ezekiel, uh, to go specifically to him, and he cries out, this city has been captured, um, what a devastating Thing it was to witness that um, over in uh, Lamentations you can take the time to read on your own in chapter 4 verses 17 and 18 you can read some of that uh, Lamentations 4 17 and 18 but to see the city captured to see the, the many that had been slaughtered to see the temple destroyed to see uh, the city lay in ruins remember 
uh, you know, you had Babylon had laid siege against the city, had built the siege mounds, and uh, had finally penetrated the walls. And, uh, and as ancient armies did, once they finally uh, penetrated a city, especially when a city was trying to hold out, then they were ten times more violent, vile, and destructive in proving that you could not keep us out. Then they would actually raise, R-A-Z-E, uh, raise a city uh, and level as much as, you know, not everything was raised, there were ruins, but uh, there was just massive destruction. Many people had starved to death during the siege anyway. Uh, you know, people had literally eaten other human flesh, and so disease was rampant, uh, cannibalism, all that was even before they had breached the city and to come in and and then uh, the city was fully captured, and, and many were carried away into captivity, uh, and they were humiliated. Many of them were dismembered, all of these things. And so the, the man who gets there and uh, says to Ezekiel, the city's been captured, he's seen the collapse with his own eyes. We have an eyewitness account that God actually preserves this guy to get there and give an eyewitness account. Now, the fall of Jerusalem is believed to be July 18th. 586 B.C., July 18th, 586 B.C. Now, that's not on the Hebrew calendar. There is no July 18th on the Hebrew calendar. So that is, that is actually taking the Hebrew calendar and putting it into our Gregorian calendars. But uh, if you're trying to match up the Gregorian calendar to the Hebrew calendar, it's believed to be July 18th, 586 B.C. And then the news reaches Ezekiel uh, close to six months later. Uh, this, it wasn't like they got on uh, JetBlue and, and went over there and delivered the message or uh, did a Skype call or anything like that. They had to make a long trip up, uh, you know, up into uh, kind of following uh, the route that Babylon would come in for the attack up through Syria, down through Iraq, which is down through modern-day Iraq, until uh, he would get to where Ezekiel was. But it finds out about six months later on January 8th, uh, 585 B.C. Now, how do we know that? Well, it says there in verse 21, on the fifth, on the tenth month, the fifth day of the month. So that is the Hebrew calendar, and then you can extrapolate from the Hebrew calendar uh, what the what the Gregorian date would be. So he gives us the date there, fifth day of the month, uh, and then it's in the twelfth year of our captivity. So again, all of these things can be date verified based on when the captivity started. The Lord uh, then loosens the tongue of Ezekiel. He says in verse 22, Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before. That's a great, that's just a great verse, isn't it? Don't you wish you could always say, Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before. That's something we want to say every single day, right? Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the night I slept, the day before, hours before. Uh, we want to have the Lord's hand on us. Uh, at all times. Because, you know, when you get heavy news, it's nice to know that God has already pre-strengthened us, isn't it? Because he's, he does, he's going to get this heavy, heavy news, but it's always good that God, you know, kind of, you ever look back and you realize God had really been preparing me and I didn't understand? You look back at those times, you're like, wow, I didn't realize the hand of the Lord had been upon me six months prior, one year prior, whatever it may be. So when collapses come, the people of God are prepared for it, even though they don't feel prepared. That makes sense? They're prepared at a spirit level. Only, you know, the hand of the Lord, he didn't see a hand, he didn't necessarily uh, feel a physical hand, but he knows the spirit hand of the Lord, and all of us can have that spiritual hand of the Lord 
upon us. And we need that spiritual hand upon us because we never know what a day holds, do we? We never know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. And we would need, you know, I was listening, uh, Pastor Hardison was talking about, uh, uh, he invited years ago, like he said, he's a, he was an Assemblies of God pastor. And, uh, but he reached out to Jerry Falwell's director of evangelism. I think his name was J.R. Crooms. And he flew him out to New Mexico because he wanted to see, he had heard so much about this guy's just on fire, uh, just zeal for witnessing to people. And so he said, said he brings J.R. Crooms out there and, and uh, uh, J.R. Crooms says, all right, here's what we need to do. We need to be praying from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. every morning. And then we're going to go out and share Jesus with people. And then we're going to pray from 3 o'clock in the afternoon until 6 o'clock in the evening. And we're going to do it all the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And he said, and when we do, God's power will be upon us. Now you talk about like understanding what the hand... So he said, that he goes, he goes, guys, goes, guys, Pastor Hardis, I, I want to have him preach here when he's in his late 60s. He goes, I was worn out by day three. He's like, you know, here I was. He goes, I, I thought I really loved Jesus. He goes, that second prayer meeting was killing me, <laughs> the one in the afternoon. Because <laughs> you had the three hours of prayer, and we had Bible study, and then we went witnessed people. And then he comes back, and he gets back on his knees for three more hours. He said, but I watched him win 14 people to Jesus Christ. And then he says, oh, I want to go now across the river into Juarez. He goes, well, you go to Juarez. You, you have no rights over there. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll take you and... Um, and if, if they feel like arresting you, you know, you'll never be heard from. He goes, I don't care. I need to test everything God's ever shown me over there. So they go over the river to Juarez, and this guy's riding a bicycle. They pull up beside him, and this guy speaks very broken English. So J.R. gets out of the car, wins him to Christ in about 10 minutes, and immediately says, God has given us our interpreter. <laughs> so now they go into the city center. He witnesses 14 more people get saved, so 28. And, and uh, just, just the hand of the Lord upon us. But how is it upon? Well, it upon us when we abide in the presence of the Lord. There's no shortcuts to having the hand of the Lord in our life. And I know for me as a pastor, all of us, we were all sitting there like, we don't pray six hours a day. You know, like, you know all of us are like, you know, realizing that uh, uh, the power of God comes through the presence of God. And we need God's hand on our life because you never know. There will be collapses. There will be times where uh, we're going to wish we had prayed up a little bit more, aren't we? We're going to wish God's hand was more on us. Now, he's faithful. Those of us that love him, uh, he'll still be there for us, but um, we can be a lot more ready. And it's certainly Ezekiel had been ready. He'd been being readied for seven years, right? All during this time for this devastating news. He was not taking any pleasure in it. It was difficult. But the people, on the other hand, back in Jerusalem, and even those around him, but particularly those in Jerusalem, because the ones in Jerusalem were the ones that were killed, slaughtered, maimed, and carried away into captivity, humiliated. I mean, if you're a parent, to watch your children killed in front of you, and then maybe, uh, you know, maybe one of the parents survives, and it becomes a slave, and they literally drive stakes in you, or whatever it may be, just the, uh, just the cruel things that were done. Uh, but they never believed that that collapse was coming. Thomas Fuller said, you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. You cannot repent too soon 
because you do not know how soon it may be too late. And all that time, God was giving time, but it always seemed too soon for the people that were there <laughs> until it, in fact, was too late. Let's look at the cause here. If you're taking notes, verses 23 through 29. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, they who inhabit the ruins in the land are saying, Abraham was, the, was only one, and he inherited the land, but we are many. The land has been given to us as a possession. Um, there's some debate as to exactly who these survivors are. Uh, were they some of the early survivors uh, that um, are killed rather soon? Are they some of the survivors that actually make the dreaded mistake that Jeremiah warns them not to do, and they go down to Egypt uh, where they are pursued and they actually are uh, killed in Egypt? Uh, or are they another third group that actually is neither of those two groups? But nevertheless, they're definitely uh, some group of people that had survived by God's allowing them to survive. And it would appear that even through survival, imagine if there is a devastating thing, whether it be in Europe or the United States, and a group of people survive. That's always an opportunity to either turn to God or keep doing things exactly as we've always done them before. And this group, uh, though there's, like I said, some debate exactly which survivors they are, there's no debate that their confidence is severely flawed. Their confidence is severely flawed. They actually are talking about, well, Abraham, the only one. We're many, so we made it through. We are God's, we're the ones that God really, really, really loves. We're the ones that he wants to restore all this to. And our, our uh, confidence can be flawed. That reminds me of a story there was a little boy, uh, he had overheard uh, his dad talking to another gentleman. They had like a cookout or party or something in the house. And he, he'd overheard his dad telling, and he just kind of heard little bits and pieces. And he overheard his dad telling this other guy, he had, a guy was asking about his occupation. And he, the, so his dad was telling the, the other gentleman that he uh, had been an underwriter for years. And one morning, uh, the boy comes downstairs. He has his Sunday best on, and he didn't have a briefcase, so he's carrying his backpack. And puts it beside dad's briefcase and tells his parents that, uh, or tells his mom, you know, I'm, I'm going to work with dad today. Uh, I want to do what dad does at work. And mom goes, you know, you, you, don't, you don't know how to do what daddy does. And he goes, don't worry, mom, I've been wearing underwear for years. So um, you, think that you, you think that you know what uh, kind of is making something tick or making something work or why it is, or how someone uh, you know, is able to uh, receive or do something. Uh, in this particular case, uh, the Jews that are there, uh, they still think that um, because they're the descendants of Abraham, uh, that they're covered. So if you're taking notes, I want to uh, give you a couple of things that are outlined here, five things that God outlines as the cause of Judah's ruin. That doesn't mean that this is an exhaustive list, but this is the list that God gives right here. Uh, so as in his brief recap of why Judah, and this, uh, specifically the, the city of Jerusalem, why it was captured, the first uh, I've titled perpetual blindness. Perpetual blindness. Uh, that being that they still thought that being Jewish and being the descendants of Abraham, they believed that this meant something to God. Now, on one sense, it does mean something to God. Certainly, God does have a love for 
his chosen people, the nation state of Israel. But Jewish people also go to hell when they reject God too. We all understand that, right? Uh, so God's no respecter of persons being the descendant of Abraham. Uh, now, that, a, a clue of this should have been that their city was just destroyed. A clue of this should have been that the whole country had now been destroyed. From northern Israel, the, the northern kingdom, all the way down, there was no part of Israel that hadn't been completely taken over by foreign enemies. So uh, there should uh, have been the understanding that, hey, our Jewish blood is not really any kind of free pass to God's just automatic favor and blessing. But you'd have to be blind to the facts. I mean, you could show them the facts. Say, how could, you know, the prophets would do this. You know, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, how could you possibly believe that you are under the favor and blessing of God if these things are happening? And I've cited it before in our own country that, you know, other pastors, uh, men that I respect, have said, and I agree with them, that America's already under some partial judgment, not... It's certainly not the fulfilled judgment or the outpouring of judgment. Uh, if that was the case, uh, we wouldn't be sitting leisurely here tonight now, would we? Uh, so we haven't seen complete judgment, but we have a partial judgment, and we see it in many different respects. We see it in the, the, just the collapse of the family, the collapse of morality. We see it in many natural disasters, whether it's you know, Columbia, South Carolina, or tornadoes when they ripped through the South a couple of years ago, or just uh, massive, massive uh, numbers of people with cancer and uh, with heart disease and the, the uh, number of people that are on prescription drugs and all of the things that, uh, that are uh, you know, just happening, the psychosomatic situations and uh, when we you know, look at the prison systems, they're overflowing and all of these things and the drug use and, the, and now, I mean, in just the last couple of years, the number of police officers are being shot just a complete disregard. It, it truly is lawlessness, as the Bible talks about. And so we see a partial judgment. Uh, we don't see the complete judgment. Thank goodness there's still the Holy Spirit remnant of born-again believers that are salt and light in the earth, and particularly in our own nation. It's kind of a stay of uh, the full judgment. But we see some of these things, and you can ask other people, and they might say, no, 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 I don't see anything different. All looks the same to me. It's a perpetual blindness, blindness uh, uh, to what God is showing. But their statement here, they say, you know, if uh, Abraham was only one and he inherited the land and we're many, the land's been given to us as a possession. Let me paraphrase their statement, see if this it makes it more clear. If God did so much for Abraham, surely he'll do even more for a group our size. That's essentially what they're saying. Abraham was one. We're many. He received the blessing and favor of God. Abraham became wealthy. The scriptures tell us that. Uh, he was blessed, had many servants. Uh, he even defeated the kings that came against Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, you know, Abraham was given victory. He was given all kinds. He was given uh, Isaac. I mean, uh, later, he finally gets Isaac, but uh, the nation comes from him comes from his loins, uh, but he was blessed in a tremendous way. Uh, he died at a ripe old age. And they're thinking, hey, if Abraham received all of those blessings, and he was just one guy, we're a bunch of his sons and daughters, surely 
God will do a whole lot for us. Um, it's like saying, hey, if, if God took care of that small group on the Mayflower, surely Boston's going to do a whole lot better under God's goodness. Just, not because of what they do, just their sheer numbers, because there's a lot more people in Massachusetts today than there were at the time when the Mayflower landed there. Uh, but one doesn't follow the other. God, that's not, those aren't, you know, well, if I did this in the past and you're a direct descendant, you know the estate. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. Each individual has to purposely and individually submit to God on their own. Matthew Henry says, this argues great stupidity. <laughs> He's talking about their statement. <laughs> you got to wait, love the way the guys wrote back in the uh, um, mid, uh, well, two, three hundred years ago. Uh, he says, this argues great stupidity under the weighty hand of God and a reigning selfishness and narrow spiritedness. They please themselves in the ruin of their country as long as they hoped to find their own account in it, cared not that it were all waste, so they might have the sole property, a poor inheritance to be proud of. So he was saying that ultimately they felt like, hey, we might have a ruined country, but it's ours. It might be a smoking, smoldering mess, and nothing grows, but it now it's all ours. And, uh, you know, first of all, that seems to be uh, just kind of uh, a bizarre response anyway. But people do have that same kind of response even today, right? You know, people will make a mess of that's a marriage or everything else, but that's okay. At least I won. I won. I got control of the kids. They can't stand me, and everything's wrong, and everything's a mess, but I won. And so that's a horrible response and not... Certainly not uh, any kind of response that someone that has a relationship with God would have. Uh, but they have the misconception that, that God uh, has given them a blessing. Maybe perhaps they thought that the smoldering mess was going to spring up into beauty. Um, but to compare themselves with Abraham, there's one big difference. And God actually then points out the differences. Abraham actually loved God. <laughs> so this is, this is the fundamental problem with their argument. Yes, you descend from Abraham, but you are nothing like Abraham. Abraham was not perfect, but he chose to love and obey God. All of us that are here tonight, we're no better than anyone else riding, riding by this building on Genito tonight. The only difference is we've, we've bowed the knee at the feet of Jesus. And then he makes us into his own. They... Unlike Abraham, who loved and obeyed God, they were deep in sin. Not before, currently, they were deep in sin. They were still deep in sin. They'd never, they've yet to turn from sin. And God outlines the things that they were in. And by the way, you know, they, uh, you know, they still talked about, <laughs> they said, um, they believed that, uh, they believed that, you know, God was there for them. And people that believe that they can be in sin and yet believe that God is still for them uh, are sadly mistaken. In Proverbs 28, 9, it says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. There are many people that I want praying for me because I know they're prayer warriors, I know when they pray, God hears them. 
I know they're not perfect, but I know they love the Lord, and when they pray, God is hearing their prayers. There's other people, it's fine if they do pray for me, but God would never hear them. Well, I mean, God in his providence knows everything, but he's not listening to the prayers of those that are not his followers. You've seen people over the course of your lifetime that you know aren't followers of God, and they say something like this, you're in our thoughts and prayers. First of all, I doubt you have any prayer life going on. But if you did, until you come to the Lord, prayers are not actually being received by God. According to Proverbs 28, 9, the one who refuses the law of God, his prayers are an abomination. So God is not uh, looking favorably on people's prayers. And on the one hand, they resist God, but on the other hand, they're still praying to God. And one thing that God doesn't like anywhere in the scriptures is hypocrisy, that there's two, you know, two things coming out, bitterness and purity. Uh, prayer is a pure thing. Living in sin uh, is an evil thing. And so they were still in all kinds of sin. And if you're taking notes, uh, the first one, as I already mentioned, was perpetual blindness. The second one, the Lord uh, cites here, you eat meat with blood and you lift up your eyes towards idols. The second one is idolatry. Idolatry. Um, not new on the list if you've been with us in the study. God's just reiterating the fact that they had replaced their love for God with a love for things, with a love for the gods of the Canaanites, with a God, the gods of the surrounding countries. Uh, they had been given the law. They were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. Uh, but instead of following as those men did, they follow the very gods that those men, particularly Moses and Joshua, uh, were sent to deliver them from. And Joshua came in, and they were to destroy the idols of the land. They brought them all back in. And so in our country, you look at the fact that uh, you know, God has been so great to this nation. Um, God shed his grace on me. He has shed a lot of grace on us, hasn't he? And with all the goodness and all the freedom and all the opportunities that God has given the vast majority of people cling to idolatry, and they're not worshiping little statues. They're just worshiping their careers or their kids or their hobbies, right, or their education, all the different things that people idolize, and they have very little time for God. You know, imagine if we stand before God, and he says, let, let me take an account of how much time you were giving me. And he, and he will give it, we're going to give an account of everything. So one day, people, even idle words will be given account of. That actually, when you actually rem, are reminded of that when you're going throughout the day, like, oh yeah, even idle words, because we're all guilty of idle words, right? Now, that doesn't, we're still saved by grace, but it's just a reminder of God saying, come forward in your faith, grow beyond that. Don't live in the land of idle words, move forward. I'm talking about uh, idle, I-D-L-E, not I-D-O-L. But they were not just in a place of just kind of growing and still, you know, maturing. No, they were still in full rejection of God. You see the difference? All of us are growing or trying to grow in the Lord, trying to progress in our faith, trying to be more like Jesus. I, I presume that's why you're here on a Wednesday night when, you know, Wednesday nights uh, are not a huge thing in America. I presume that's because you want to grow. But idolatry is rejecting God, no desire to even obey and grow at all. 
And so God says, you, uh, you eat meat with blood. They weren't allowed, the children of Israel were not allowed to drink blood in its, you know, when you, in its form. Uh, until it had to be completely cooked and, and uh, cooked out of the meat. Uh, but, you know, the pagans, part of their idolatrous practice, was not just to kill an animal and then, you know, slaughter and eat it. But oftentimes they would drain the blood and just drink it. You've seen some of these bizarre uh, practices around the world that still go on, just drinking the blood, and the, uh, it's part of demonic rituals. So they, they had actually entered into the very demonic practices of the pagans, and yet they still thought the blessing of God was upon them. Why? Because they still went to the temple. On the one hand, and it, we have this all the time in the church, people are watching things that are just absolute filth, and on the other hand, but I still go to church, it's idolatry. Second one, he says, uh, or the third one, the first one was perpetual blindness, second was idolatry, the third one here that God cites, uh, and you shed blood. There was violence. Uh, we live in a very violent culture now, don't we? Even people that don't commit violence love to watch violence, love to watch movies about violence, love to play video games about violence. It's going to be real hard to stand before Jesus and say, well, I never liked violence. And then the Lord said, roll tape. You know, it's the, uh, I was walking, I, I go walking through my neighborhood. Uh, I go walking a lot in the mornings. And now it's the month of October. So it's the Halloween decorations are out. Remember when the Halloween decorations were like Casper the Friendly Ghost? Not anymore. And I, in my neighborhood, we have 800 homes in our neighborhood. I kid you not. There's chainsaws. There is like, you know, like machetes and heads of, uh, I mean, uh, I can't even describe some of the things. All skulls everywhere. I mean, just not just funny, like skeletons claws you would say ABC Schoolhouse Rock back in the 80s or something. I'm talking about gory looking skulls with blood dripping down the skull and all this stuff. And I'm like, death is so wonderfully fun, isn't it? You know? And yet none of them people, I imagine would ever want to be the victims of the things they have people hanging by nooses from their front porch. I don't think anybody ever wants to be victimized by those things, but we call it entertainment or holiday or fun. And so you recognize that there's something that has embraced the culture, and this was true of ancient Jerusalem. The culture had become accustomed to violence, quite comfortable with it, as long as it didn't happen to them personally. Right? Most people don't want to be the victims of crime, but they like to watch movies about crime. Or they like to watch crime shows or all these kind of things. Fourth one, he says, and God begs the question, should you possess the land when you're involved and in, you're completely blind, you're full of idolatry and violence? And then the, uh, he says, should you possess the land, which is a redundant question. God said, absolutely not. Uh, verse 26, you rely on your sword. Self-reliance, self-reliance. Uh, as a nation, we put a lot of reliance on we're going to be in good shape because we got Wall Street. They'll never let us down, right? We've got the Fed. They'll never let us down. we got the armed forces, best in the world. They'll never let us down. We've got people like Lockheed Martin working for us. We'll ne never let us down. We've got all the best technology in the world. Uh, Citibank, surely your credit card information can never be compromised, right? Oh, I take that back. Nearly every bank has now been compromised, right? right? So on and on down it goes. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Sunday, we, uh, we get out and my wife 
I see, a, I see an alert on my phone from Citibank, and then uh, my wife gets one on her phone, then we get a call, I said, you better take that, I'm pretty sure. Uh, someone in Ukraine had sent, spent 15, or tried to spend $1,500 on our account. While we were in church, while I was preaching, someone in Ukraine was actually trying to spend $1,500 on the account. Now, this isn't unusual. This is happening all the time now. So again, the confidence we have in our system, in our structure, in our infrastructure, in our businesses, in all of these things, it's a false confidence. And, and even if we stop a thing or here too, it's just little reminders that God says, at any time, at any time, pull the plug. And these things can have a domino effect. But they had a self-reliance. They had a lot of pride in that, well, you know, God doesn't really mean us. He really wouldn't let us fall. Uh, surely these other countries, does it tire? They would deserve it. You know, Egypt would deserve it, but not, not us. And oh, by the way, we've figured everything out. We have our own sword. We know how to take care of ourselves. And God hates pride. D.L. Moody said, Go, uh, God sends no one away except those that are full of themselves. God sends no one away except those that are full of themselves. You know, God will always give mercy when we come to him in humility. Even, even the most vile sinner can be forgiven and transformed at the moment of a humble repentance. But self-reliance. Just notice that he throws self-reliance in there. That, that doesn't seem like such a, you know, but uh, we're full of a nation of self-made men and women, or at least in their mind they're self-made. Uh, they're really not. And then the fifth one here, um, and you defile one another's wives. Uh, immorality had no bounds. Adultery didn't matter. God-given bounds on sexuality didn't matter anymore. Uh, boy, we're, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? God-given bounds on sexuality just didn't matter anymore then. They certainly don't matter in our nation. You know, the marriage rate is declining because less and less people are getting married. And, and then uh, if they are getting married, that's a later state. But that's after they have experimented with many relationships first because you've got to experiment a lot before you can find that right person. Of course, there's many studies to prove that is not true and doesn't work. But nevertheless, uh, and then you've got all kinds of other variations of what people now have defined as what a relationship is, and God still says it's one man and one woman for one lifetime. And if there's death uh, or if there's legitimate uh, adultery or divorce reasons, there are some, uh, but outside of those things, anything else is considered some form of fornication or adultery, some form, regardless. But they had, uh, they, you know, they still went to temple, but they may be having relationships outside of, you know, marriages and things like that. And uh, God, it's, it's amazing what people think God doesn't see or doesn't care about. But again, it goes back to the first one, perpetual blindness. And so because of that, he says, uh, I will make the land desolate. And he also says in verse 27 uh, that the sword or wild beast or pestilence will devour all those that had. So they had escaped. It, it'd be like a nuclear bomb blowing up New York City. And a handful of people survive it somehow, right? I mean, the city is, and, and the five boroughs, there's a handful. They do a count. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, out of 17 million and all the 
surrounding New York area or whatever, how many people, if you go 100 miles out or whatever, uh, they, they do the math, and all of a sudden they do a count, and there's 5,000 people have survived. And the 5,000 decide, God loves us a lot. We don't have to change anything we're doing. Now we own Manhattan. We own parts of Connecticut. We have all this stuff. It all belongs to us. And they would be sadly mistaken because not only uh, would they see the land would not come back, just like if you were uh, to have nuclear radiation, it would actually be horrible for the land for a long period of time. But God says the land is cursed, but these people won't survive either. They made it through the worst of it, it would seem, and now they might, some will get killed by lions or leopards. Some will actually be defeated and killed by other surrounding tribes. Or when Babylon rolls back through on their way to Egypt, they'll wipe them out along the way. And others will die of diseases in caves. Starvation, diseases. So uh, they're not going to survive. Now, they could have had they repented, but they didn't. And let's look at the final section of our text, uh, verses 30 through 33. It, it shifts gears, and he's talking to Ezekiel here, and he says, As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and doors and houses. Now, he's speaking now of, he was talking about those that had survived over in Jerusalem. Now he's switching gears, and he's talking about those of his people that are the captives, those that have been listening to Ezekiel for the last seven years. They've been coming to his little church services. They've been coming to his Bible studies. They've been coming to Ezekiel's little, you know, uh, informational talks from God. And he says, they like to, they, they, they're talking about you. Uh, they're speaking to one another. They're saying, you've got to come and hear. Please come and hear with the word that comes from the Lord. You've got to hear Ezekiel. This guy can some kind of teach. You've got to hear this guy. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, he tells a lot of good stuff. Uh, really weird stuff. I mean, we don't, some, we don't have a clue what he's talking about, but you still got to hear it anyway. Uh, he's talking about Jerusalem going down. It's fascinating. Imagine if it ever happened, that kind of thing. So there was this um, interest from these, uh, the, the people there in, in Babylon, and they would come, and he says, so they come as, as people do, and they sit before you as my people, and hear your words, but they do not do them. But their mouth is show much love, but their hearts, they pursue their own gain. Uh, they had actually become quite ingrained in the Babylonian culture, uh, which Babylon wanted. Babylon wanted, when they would bring in captives, they wanted you to become just like them. And they were. But they would still come and listen to Ezekiel. And they would still ponder what he was talking about. And they still found it fascinating. So much so that they invited friends to come. So that they, they talk about you. They tell their neighbor, you, you come and you should really listen to this guy. Do you do anything? No, do anything, he says. But you really should hear him, right? So there was an interest, but no intention of following. There was a curiosity, but no commitment. There was a calming of the spirit, temporarily, but no answer to the call. It even says that uh, in verse 32, Indeed, you are to them as a lovely song, one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. This reminds me of the ministry of Jesus. Do you realize how many people love to come hear Jesus teach? What happened on the day of the crucifixion, resurrection, uh, the day of crucifixion there in Jerusalem? Give us Barabbas by the thousands. Many of them that love to hear Jesus teach. You've got to hear this guy teach. And he, you can see what he does with fish and loaves. You should see what he's done with blind people. You see what he's done with it. Uh, so uh, tell me, what, 
how, are you following? No, I don't follow him. Boy, do I love to listen to him. Right? It's the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of John the Baptist. People would listen to him, but many of them wouldn't follow. That's what Jesus asked the Pharisees. The ministry of John the Baptist. Did it come from God or did it come from man? We don't know. Right? Fascinating, but we just don't know. Jesus just said, neither will I tell you about me and where I come from. But there was this interest, curiosity, but no following it. The pull of their lives says that they, they, uh, their hearts pursued their own gain. The pull of their lives would not allow them to change and obey the words of God. Isn't that the case with so many? They actually do, deep down, they know what they're hearing is true. They know what they need to do. Still won't do it. Jesus said, now he who received, in Matthew 13, 22, now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word. And the cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word. He becomes unfruitful. Many people know, they know beyond a shadow of a doubt the Bible's true. They know they should follow Jesus. They know that they should just give their life and say, wherever you send me, I'll go. They know it. They know it as sure as we're all sitting here, and I'm standing. But why? Jesus points out for many of them, the deceitfulness of riches or what they can, what kind of riches they can produce in their own life, what they can produce that they think will bring them peace, that they think will bring them happiness, that they think will fulfill them. They know Jesus says that he offers life, but they're just not sure that what he has to offer is as good as what they can manufacture on their own. So they never follow him. And so there's this desire to hear and this desire to uh, really, really listen and, and enjoy it in some respect, but not make that commitment. You know, really everything God calls us to is the valley of decision, not the, the valley of perpetual waffling. I got saved in 1995 when that message was preached from Revelation chapter 3 at the lukewarm church. And it, literally the, the, the words were used is, which side of the fence are you going to go to? You're, you, can't, you can't walk forever on top of the fence. You know that fence line? Where you just, you're going to fall eventually one way or the other. You might as well go to the right side. And they had this opportunity, uh, but they wouldn't. I, 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 we, were, we were all giving our testimony yesterday, all seven of us. And so... We went around, we were all telling them how we come, and I knew portions of some of the guys there, but not all of them. And I was talking about how when, before, the year that me and Sarah got saved in Fort Lauderdale, we, um, we had been going to Calvary Fort Lauderdale off and on. Uh, we originally got invited by a friend of mine who I did a lot of partying with, and he was an air traffic controller. He has his career in the Air Force, and then he was an air traffic controller, uh, the Miami Regional um, uh, ATC there. And... He had go started going to a Bible study. I couldn't believe he was at a Bible study. And, uh, and so then we went. And eventually, it was the most bizarre thing. We took as many friends from our apartment complex as were in this room sometimes to Sunday morning services at Calvary Fort Lauderdale. There must have been sometimes 30 of us. And then, you know, it's, it was different every time. Tons of our friends that were between mid-20s and early 30s were all interested in hearing Bob Coy preach. We love to hear him teach. We loved it. Guess how many 
gave their lives to Christ after all that time? Two. Her and me. All the rest of them, poof, over time, never would follow. They, they loved to hear it. They knew it was true. They were convinced that it was probably something they should do. But a couple of them were bank vice presidents, and the money was really good. And a couple of them were you know, really into certain kind of sins, and they didn't want to give those up. And a couple of them were into relationships that they were really deep in, and they didn't want to give up those relationships. And they wanted to be able to experience with other relationships and all of those things. So eventually, one by one, they would just drop off because they heard the call, but they wouldn't heed the call. And then lastly, in verse 33, uh, he says, and when this comes to pass, what is he talking about? He says, when they all hear about the destruction of Jerusalem, that they enjoyed hearing you talk about, they were kind of intrigued by it, they still didn't believe you knew what you were talking about. An odd thing, I mean, because people do believe the words of some pastor, they just don't believe that well, I don't think, I don't think he, God will do that to me, right? So, but when it comes to pass, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. You see, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, one in Jerusalem, the other one in Babylon, uh, with the first two waves of Jewish captives, they were rare in their message. They were extremely rare prophets in their day uh, because all the other prophets, or should I say pseudo-prophets, uh, they were not warning people. Ezekiel and Jeremiah are warning people. All the others were calling, well, instead of calling for repentance, they were relaxing the people. They were soothing the people. They were assuring the people. Uh, they were, instead of exposing sin, they were condoning sin. They were reminding the people that Ezekiel and Jeremiah were a little uptight, a little too literal, right, and a little too judgmental. That's the message that was coming from all the other prophets. So, but they still were intrigued. These guys really believe what they're saying, so they would go and listen. But God says, when they fully understand the devastation of Jerusalem, when it really is, when all of them get the front page headlines and they see for themselves what has happened, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And surely the world has known that Jesus, a prophet, has been among us. Amen? He raised from the dead conquered sin, and, you know, as a Christian, as for me as a pastor, you know, I believe that uh, this is encouragement to all of us that are called. Uh, uh, Paul said in Colossians 1.28, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. You know, we're called, if we really love people, if we really love people, not to tell them what they want to hear, but tell them what God wants them to hear. Amen. That's what God has asked us to do. Tell them the truth, tell it in love, and let God and the Holy Spirit take care of the rest. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time again this evening. Uh, we ask, Jesus, uh, that uh, you would just continue uh, to strengthen our love for you. Uh, we want to grow and we want to mature. We know that uh, we have a long ways to go, yet, Lord, we're thankful for your patience with us. We're thankful... Uh, for your just continued work in leading us to the cross. And uh, we ask, Lord, in the days we live in, which are, which are very, very much like uh, the days uh, before Jerusalem's collapse, Lord, we see some of the same deception. We see some of the same 
uh, issues of sin. We see some of the same uh, issues of blindedness, uh, both in the church and outside the church. And we pray, Lord, uh, that we would not be uh, those that uh, are listening uh, to the enemy's uh, deceptions and distractions. But, Lord, and we would not be led away by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. But, Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. You are dismissed.